our uh, scripture reading today is going to be in Genesis chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. <clears throat> then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me, she gave, she gave the fruit to me and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Now, I hope you all had a thank, good Thanksgiving. Um, it's one of those good times of the year and one of the challenging times as well for some. And, and even from a church perspective, and I think Eric mentioned it well, that we're in that kind of transition between Christmas and New Year's, or, or excuse me, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And um, and so we're, we're trying to decide how are we going to handle our services. And so Mark came up with what I thought was a very good idea. And uh, we are going to do a mini-series of four weeks. And the title of it is, They Will Testify of Me. And it's going to be four sermons from the Old Testament talking about um, the, the coming of the Messiah and the Savior that, that's soon to come. And I think the perspective will be, will be really helpful and really good. And, and I have the privilege of beginning that. And so we're going to be in Genesis 3 this morning, as you heard uh, read, a, an interesting Christmas kind of a passage for sure. <clears throat> and it's one that I've entitled, The Story Behind the Story of Christmas. And as I, as I came to this text, one of the things that crossed my mind was a couple years ago, Kathy and I, decided we were going to start an annual tradition. Actually, I guess I decided it. And it was one of those annual traditions that lasted one year. You know, have you ever had those annual traditions? <laughs> and then this year I thought, wait a minute, didn't we have an annual tradition? Let's start it again. So, and it was that we would watch the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings because we bought the DVDs, and so that's what we were going to do because she's a very good reader of fiction, and I'm not. I'm not a bad movie watcher. I like reading theology. So, so we started it. And one of the interesting things about The Lord of the Rings is that it talks about this, this interesting thing called a ring, and when you first are introduced to the story, you're not sure what the point of the ring is. It doesn't take long to understand that there's a backstory to the ring. And, and soon you find out that, it's, that, it, that it seems to be one that is either evil itself or causes people to be evil, and it moves people in strange directions. And, and you know, Gollum, who is one of the characters, the sinister little slithering character guy, <clears throat> who I, I like to imitate by saying, my precious. And thank you, I do a bad imitation of it. But you know the point. The point is there's a backstory to the ring. And, and we come to the Christmas time of year, and it seems like we come to it earlier and earlier every year. And the fact is, if you're going to truly understand the point of the advent of God to man, and if you're going to really understand the story of Christmas, you need to understand the backstory that introduces and actually leads you to that particular story. And that's not the end of the story either. Because the birth of Jesus is really kind of the beginning of a life of Christ that is going to be pinnacled in his death and resurrection. And, and that's the beauty and the hope of the Christian faith. But none of that makes sense if you don't go back to Genesis and get the backstory. So that's what we're going to do this week. 
And we're going to look at three acts, and I've tried to look at it a little bit of, you know, sort of like as if I were a movie maker, which I'm anything but. And, and, and there's going to be three acts, and Act 1 is in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to do that very quickly. And Act 2 um, is in Genesis 3. And Act 1 is creation, the beauty of creation. Act 2 is the fall, temptation and fall. And then we're going to just give a little snippet that's going to introduce kind of the Christmas beauty, and that is that there is an Act 3, there's hope for a fallen world who's just recently been cast out of paradise. So that's kind of the flow that we're going to go with. And, and by the way, the Bible really is one story. It's not, a, it's not a compilation of like hundreds of stories, and certainly there are many, many stories in it, but it's all one story, and it's the story of the Creator God who has interacted with a fallen world and brings redemption, and then finally the consummation is going to be the glory of God in His final kingdom. That's the story of the Bible, and really here's the quest for all of us, and that is to find out how does my story fit into the story of the Bible. Rather than cram the story of the Bible into me, it's let me read the Bible and see how I intersect with that. So we're going to start that this morning. Act number one is in Genesis 1 and 2. And by the way, I hope you have your Bibles with you because I've said this before. I am not the best at following manuscripts. So if you're going to try the manuscript, you can try it. The outline, I think, is the bold points I'll probably follow past that. I make no promises. So act one, creation. The actors are God. And then there's a man... And then there's a woman. There's three actors. And if you look at Genesis 1, and if you haven't looked at it recently, and we don't have time to go through Genesis 1, except to say this. If you look at the first verse of almost every verse, not every verse, but almost every verse in Genesis 1, you find a very redundant theme. And it is, and I knew I would try this every service and nobody will talk because that's the way it is in church. You're not allowed to talk. You must be quiet. It's, Like at the first two words in verse 3, and I think it's true in every translation, is and God. And then verse 4 is and God. And a little further in verse 4 is and God. And verse 6 is and God. And verse 7 is and God. And verse 8 is and God. And verse 9 is and God. And verse 11 is and... You You get the point, right? The main actor is God, without any doubt. And God is the actor who, as you read through the beauty of Genesis 1, and there's a real glory to Genesis 1 that's further uh, described in Genesis 2 as it's as though the writer Moses, led by the Holy Spirit, goes in even a little bit further in depth about particularly man and woman, about the image bearer of God. And you find God is a very active, not a static God, and he's one who's engaging in this creation. He's engaging it in verb form, in, in speech form, and then also in action form as he molds and makes his image. And, 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 and the creator God is actively at work at the beginning of everything. Which, by the way, if you want to know how you intersect with that story, the fact is this. The sufficient cause of you and everything that you know is God. <laughs> it's about him more than it's about you. He's the actor and the prime actor, and we, in our actions, need to bring our actions into his will because that's what we were created for. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it's a great thing. There's two significant realities that come out of Act 1. There's a lot more than that, but two that I want to share. The first one is this. God is present, obviously. As a matter of fact, some of the theologians, and I like this verbiage, they talk about the garden as being a garden temple. And the idea of temple, the the nuance of temple, is that a temple is a place where heaven and earth intersect, where God comes and dwells with his creation. And the garden was to be exactly that. God would come and God would intersect his life with the life of his creatures, and particularly the man and the woman. And so there was some sense, and I don't know how long they were in the garden. By the way, there's a million more questions in Genesis 1 and 2 than I could ever answer because the text doesn't answer them. And like, like, so how long were they there? I don't know, but I do know this, that for whatever length of time they were there, God and man were in unity with each other and God was God and man was man. And it was good. So point number one is, is the presence of God. As a matter of fact, the word that we sometimes use, which is a good Hebrew word around Christmas time, is we talk about Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The em part is with, the el part is God. God with us. In the garden, there was unfettered relationship between the man and the woman and God, between humanity and God. So God was there. Secondly, <clears throat> is that, that everything was good. Look at the end of, of verse 1, or chapter 1. 
And, you know, it states it really emphatically. And God gives a commentary. It's like the Monday morning record of the football game, except it wasn't a football game. It was creation. And God's the actor of it. And he gives his commentary. And he says this. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was a pretty good first shot. I mean, good job, God. Not bad. Better than anyone else could do, because you're all there was anyway. No, it was very good. And the very is an important, emphatic modifier, meaning it wasn't just good. It wasn't just sufficient. It was more than that. It was It was at the top and the pinnacle of all that you could possibly imagine. It was paradise. And what made paradise paradise was that God was with us. And also that nuance of paradise, I think, the Hebrew word for that would be the word shalom, which is the word we translate peace. You know, which is what we think Christmas is about, peace. And on one level, it's peace. On another level, it's sword. But here it was peace. It was shalom. Some of the British writers will use the term, everything is brought to right, meaning it's all like it's supposed to be, meaning it's different than my car, (laughs) meaning it's different than my sink, which I hate plumbing, frankly, meaning that it it just works. Everything works, and it works like it's supposed to, and everything is in sync. There's total unity. There's harmony. It's the way it's supposed to be. Another way of describing it is at the end of Genesis 2, in a little bit more graphic way, where the author says, and again, it was Moses and God, or the Holy Spirit inspired or, or led him. It says this, and the man and the woman were both naked. And, and, you know, when we say that to our kids, it's like, you know, then they say, what's up with that? You know, you know, what's up with that? It's not a sexual statement, not primarily. It's a statement of unashamed. Because that's what the text says. It's a statement of you could be with that other person and there were only two people and you could show the total fullness of who you are without shame. (laughs) It, It was another statement of innocence. That there is no guilt. I'm totally innocent. Therefore, I can be totally exposed to you. And I don't know about you, even my wife, who I am the closest with and who I've exposed myself the most to, there's certain little things. Some of them don't seem to be all that big a deal. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But we both had those things that just distance us a little bit from each other. Not only that, but they were naked before God and they were not ashamed. And it was paradise and it doesn't get any better than that. And that's act one. And by the way, if you don't understand act one, then you're not really going to understand what goes on in the world because we have a little taste of the way it should be, don't we? I mean, you kind of know that there are certain things that should be, but then we also know they don't seem to be the way that they should be. And yet even our concept of what should be is because of the garden. And what should be is that God's there, he's king, his people are those who live under his rule, enjoy him forever, and enjoy each other forever. They love God and they love their neighbor. So then I would love to say, Merry Christmas, see you later, come back some other time. The text doesn't do that. And we go to Act 2 pretty quickly. It's almost as though I wish there were a few more chapters for Act 1 so I could enjoy it and savor it more, but there's not. And we come to Chapter 3, and we're going to spend most of our time here because Act 2 is this. It's the fall, and it's the temptation that leads to the fall. The actors are God. The actors are Adam and Eve. They're both in there. There's a new actor inserted, right? I I like to do visual aids, and some of you, it's your fault you've encouraged me. It's not my fault. It's your fault. And those of you that don't want to encourage me, just send me an email and say, don't ever do that again, and then I'll just weigh off how many emails go which way. So anyway, I brought the third actor in figurative form, and, and there he is. I got him for a buck at Walmart. And, you know, I, I remember as I, as, I, as I brought this thing out for a service, I thought people would laugh. And then I realized it's not really a laughable looking thing. It's kind of a, you know, here's what I would say. If you're an amateur, don't do this in your own home. And, and I would also say that there's something that's intentionally a little bit ominous about this. And by the way, I don't think snakes in and of themselves are evil. But the serpent, and I think the correct interpretation of this text would be the serpent either represented Satan or I think more likely somehow Satan empowered this creature of God, this serpent. I think the serpent also represents evil in general, the evil that's in the world and the satanic evil that was behind this serpent. That's introduced in the story. 
And I don't know about you, but if I were writing this story, I would want to say, get rid of that as quickly as you can. But let's look how the text does it. Act 2, chapter 3, Genesis, says this. Now the serpent... And you, the serpent! Look at the previous verse. Everything's good, and then the serpent... If I'm, if I'm reading the story, I'm thinking, something's going on here. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That word crafty in Hebrew... I'm not a Hebrew expert, but you don't need to be, is, sounds almost the same as the word naked in Hebrew. And there's a play on words by the author. There's the innocence of, and, and here's the way one of the authors said it, the in, innocence of the nude people who came in contact with a shrewd serpent. That that serpent was intending to take away the shame or the shameless innocent reality of humanity and you just sense something's going to happen. You, you already know the story, but I hope you're reliving it a little bit this morning. And then the serpent goes to work empowered by Satan himself. And here's the first thing he does. It's at the end of verse, of verse 1. And he said to the woman, come on, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I think that's the way he said it. I'm not sure. I know he didn't speak in English. Whatever language he spoke in, she understood it. And it was a language that I think could be correctly interpreted as to say he was starting to cast some doubt in her mind. And the road of temptation that leads you to sin begins, whether you know it or not, with doubt. And doubt is not just, I doubt if this is going to be good for me. It's, I doubt God. That's who I doubt. Because you see who he's challenging did. And I think it would be correctly read almost sarcastically or with a little bit of a sneer. Or if there was a serpent, hiss, did God actually say? I think that would be the way that it could rightly be read. And then he gives this absurd statement that you can't eat of anything. Come on, anything. That's a long way from one tree. But, but what he's doing is he says, he, and, and I don't know about you, but it's happened to me where he puts in your head that little bit of doubt. So really, God, really? Have you ever had those times, and I hope you have, when you've tried to share Christ with someone and you tell them you believe in the Bible? Have you ever told anybody you believe in the Bible? So, so you, you believe in the Bible? You, do, you really, wait a minute, do you really believe that Jesus Christ took five loaves of bread, two fish, and fed 5,000 people? Really? really? I mean, we've probably got more than a... How many people we got in here? More than a thousand. When I'm up here, I can't remember. And I haven't counted you all. If I had five loaves, two fish, I'm not feeding even this section. Say nothing of those sections and all of that. You know, that's a story that's a little bit laughable, unless you just take it as just kind of a cute story that says Jesus cares for people and he'll feed you or something like that. I mean, really, do you, do you really believe that God actually created all this stuff? Do, do you really believe that God cares for you? Come on. And, and the little seed of doubt came into the mind of the woman that was put there by the serpent, for sure. And it was, it was like, here's one of the questions that, that, that could be the question of, so, God, why in the world did you let that serpent come in in the first place? Have you ever, have you ever wondered that? I don't know the answer to that. The text doesn't give the answer to that. The text gives the response to that, that mankind fell into sin. And there's things that come into our lives and the doubt of God starts to come to us. And as doubt starts, it's going to lead down a path that's not very good. So the serpent took her down the path of doubt. And then look at the woman's response in verse 2. And the woman said, (laughs) here's what the woman should have done. Isn't it always easy to tell somebody else what they should do? I mean, there's this serpent. And by the way, some think maybe the serpent had legs. I don't know if he had legs. I don't know what the curse was of him. It was certainly a curse of humiliation. Uh, but, but whatever the serpent looked like, when the serpent starts talking, if I'm the woman, my response should have been, get the, I'm going to get me a stick. I'm, I'm going to, Adam, come on over here. Get, we are missioned by God to guard the garden. And this thing is coming in and it's threatening The reality of the glory of the garden that we live in, it's threatening the godhood of God. We're not going to tolerate that. Get a stick, start smashing it, throw this thing out. Let's get rid of it. And then I ask myself how there's a little part of sin that I kind of like, you know. 
And I know it may lead me in a wrong direction, but there's enough appeal. And so I start off with, with, the, with I'm doubting God. And then here's what she says. The woman said to the serpent, her first mistake, don't talk to him, get rid of him. You, you, you can't, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Snake, you're, you don't have a very big brain anyway. Fact is, we can eat of everything, all of it, except. <laughs> right? But God said, you shall not eat of the tree or the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And, and we all know, right? She added a little bit to what God said. She said, don't touch it. And God didn't explicitly say that in the text. As a parent, I'm like, okay with that. I remember my dad. My dad was a lot bigger than me, a lot stronger than me. And the day he died, he was bigger and stronger than me, I think. And, and he used to say, because he was a dad of that era. So if you're not supposed to do this, don't do what I would do. Get up as close as I can to see. You know, have you ever done that? I know, I know but I won't take. He said, get like this far back. And then go back another couple of steps. And as a parent, I used to say the same thing to my kids. So on one level, it seems like, okay, pretty good idea. Here's what's behind the story. The behind the story is, you know, this garden's pretty good, but there's just one thing. If that were different, everything would be really good. I mean, when God said it's good, he's right, but very good, I don't know. There's one tree, and and you know what? It's such an alluring tree, and I, I have trouble thinking that it was a lot different than the other trees. But the allure was that you couldn't do it, right? Isn't that part of the appeal? And I can't, can't even touch it. If I could just touch my precious. I mean, it reminds me a little of the ring, the absurdity of a ring, really. The point isn't the ring. The point isn't the tree. The point is the heart. That's the point. And the point is the heart of one who says, I'm doubting God. And now I'm going to deny the word of God. And it seems like a little denial, and it turns out to be a major denial because it was a betrayal of her heart. And at core, I'm going to deny that God is really good. Because if he were really good, he'd let me eat that. <laughs> he wouldn't tell me no. And again, when I think through the temptation, and I think one of the reasons that it's, it, that it's, it's recorded in Genesis 3 is because if you can't see your life intersecting there at all, if you really think that he did that stuff and you wouldn't, then you are blinded. <laughs> Because here's what we do on a regular basis. We doubt God. And we'll never say it like that, but we do. Is, you know, God, really? Come on. And then, and then we deny the goodness of God. We say, God, you're not going to let me have that relationship outside of my marriage, which really seems like it would be really good. You don't want what's good for me. You're not interested in my good. You're only interested in your good, God. And we never smirk like that. The serpent does. We don't. Or, or if you're going through some, some difficulty in, in life, like, you know, Christmas is just one of those challenging times of year because it seems like we're all sensitive to, uh, we're sensitive to, I don't have enough money, I'm not healthy enough, I'm not wealthy enough, and it seems like people really aren't all that nice. When are they going to get the spirit of Christmas? And I'm living in a situation that I'm not happy with, whether, as Brad prayed, I'm single or I'm married or I'm a kid or I'm an adult or whatever it is. If I just had this I would be happy and God is withholding it from me. How dare he? <laughs> Again, if you remember that Lord of the Rings, that Gollum figure who one time is saying things are good and other times I want my precious. And we're in that same kind of quandary of temptation. And then, then the third step happens. So it starts off with I'm doubting God. I'm denying his goodness. And then watch how it goes in verse 4. And the serpent becomes just a bold-faced liar. And he says in no uncertain terms to the woman, you will not surely die. And that little not word is the negator that says, God said it, it ain't happening. You're getting too shook up over nothing. It's not that big a deal. The fact is, it is that big a deal. The fact is, the eating of the tree betrayed a heart that said, God, I don't give a rip about you. As a matter of fact, I want to be you. That's what I want. I want the ring. I want to be who you are. I want to be the Lord of my life. I want to be the controller of my life. So the serpent says, you'll not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, here's what God knows. And you don't know this, but I know it. And God knows it, that you will, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You'll be like God. The desire of every human in Walking against God is to be God. And I would imagine none of us have ever said that. And yet the fact is, every time you sin, here's what you're saying. 
I, I, I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. I don't want you to be the one that controls life. I want to be the one. I want to be the Lord. I want to be the... And, and you know what the result of that is? The result of that is you will surely die. So if you think God's a killjoy, here's what God is. He's a life giver. He's the one that prohibits you from going to death and says, here's how you find fullness of life. And it's not by being God. You know, as I try to think of illustrations of that, you know, you know how many illustrations? Dale had a thousand things to be thankful for. If I had spent that time and I didn't want to be depressed all Thanksgiving, I could probably think of a thousand times when I've fallen into sin and the pattern has been similar every time. And even though I haven't thought about it, I've never consciously said, I'm going to doubt God. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, if you say that, I'm better than you. How's that? But I, I've not said it, but I've done it. And, and then I've denied God. And I said, God, you're not after my best because I know what my best is. I know what's for my good. I know that if I pursue this relationship, I know that if I were to do this thing and lie and cheat and steal, and then I would get, and once I get, then I'll be happy. Just when I, just, oh, just that one more thing and, I, and I'll be satisfied. And then in the end of the day, I make that step, that step that says I desire to be God and I'm going to move in exactly that direction. And, and here's what we need to do, church. We need to be people that are more honest with ourselves. And when we're falling into temptation, admit what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, let's say this is it. This is what we're doing. And and then look how it, the next verse, verse six is one of the most graphic and kind of rapid verses in all the Bible. It says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, ah, that tree, you know, if it were me, I would be more tempted with that steak looks good for food. I mean, if it was fruit, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have worked with me at all. Uh, I like fruit, but I love steak. So, so you see, it's, it's kind of the lust of the flesh. She saw it was good to the delight to the eyes. And really, when you step back, and we're, I don't know how many thousand years back, we're going to say, come on, Eve, it's just, a, it's just fruit. The problem wasn't the fruit, it was her heart. The lust of the flesh, it was a delight to the eyes. The lust of the eyes, it's like Christmas commercials all over the place. I don't know about you, but I'm already tired of Christmas commercials. God deliver us from Christmas commercials. And they're all glittery. You know, I mean, glitter all over the place. And if you just get this mini iPad, you will be happy for the rest of your life. And if you don't think so, give one to your wife and give her that little bling thing. And, you know, and it goes on and on and on. And not that those things are evil in and of themselves. They betray a heart that says, if only I had the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And then here's the killer and the kicker at the end. And the tree was to be, de- to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. I can have final control of my life. I can make myself happy and healthy and wealthy. And it's all that I need. Then the text goes on. And here's the horror of act two. And the verbs are quick and they're snappy and they're deadly. Says she took, ate, gave, and he ate. That's how quick it happened. It's as though the setup for sin was before she was actually in it. It was as though her heart had already been betrayed and therefore the action wasn't that tough. And when you fall into sin, you think, boy, I don't know how I ever did that. You want to know how you did it? Well, you did it because of a number of steps before it. When you doubted God and you denied him and you desired to be God, you didn't admit any of that. You came right up to it. Then you said, all right. And then you, like Eve and like Adam, fell into sin. And then verse 7 says this. Then the eyes of both were opened, which is what they thought they wanted. I want to be like God. Open my eyes. And here's what they found. They found that they were naked. And that same word for naked just used seven verses earlier that was the glory of innocence, the glory of being unashamed, now becomes the horror of isolation, the horror of guilt, the horror of shame, the horror that then when God came into the garden, they said, we're out of here because God and us cannot coexist because we have rebelled against the creator, God. A little side story or a little sub point or a footnote is that when Jesus died on the cross, and you know a lot of that. That's, that's going to happen thousands of years later. It's a part of the big story of the Bible. 
When Jesus died on the cross, you know a lot of the pain and the anguish that he went through. Here's one of the things that was traditional in Roman execution is they executed them naked. And, and you know the reason for that? They wanted to totally humiliate and shame them such that they would be, they would realize the sin that I've done or whatever the act against the state that I did was such that I am now exposed in all of my wickedness before the whole world up on a cross. And Jesus took our nakedness on himself. On the tree, didn't he? That's... Wow. But in this particular case, here's what they did. They sewed fig leaves together. They got out the Singer sewing machine they got in for, well, they didn't have Christmas then. Whatever it was, and they made themselves loincloths, and there's part of that that's laughable. Come on. The best you can do to cover yourself up with is leaves. Those leaves are gonna, you're gonna have to keep making leaves every couple hours, probably. It's just, it's not going to work. It's that futile attempt somehow for humanity to say, I have broken my relationship with God and somehow I think I can fix it with fig leaves. And we spend a lot of our lives rebelling against our God and trying our fig leaf coverings as if that's going to make everything okay. I won't be ashamed. And yet the fact is we are ashamed and we are guilty before God Almighty. Here's what Act 2 tells us, and it tells us here today, just like it told them there before. The biggest problem in the world in 2012, coming up to December, is not that your MasterCard doesn't have a high enough um, limit on it. It isn't that your bank account is too small. It isn't that you're sick. It isn't that you don't have a nice enough house to be able to entertain people with. It isn't that your clothes aren't quite up to speed. It isn't that your job is about to go. All those things are bad. I mean, th- th- there's nothing wrong with any of those things. And all those. Here's the biggest problem. The biggest problem you and I have is sin. That's the biggest problem. That's the problem that's going to damn us to hell. That's the problem that's going to cause us to go to death. And that's a problem that comes as a result of us saying, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Maybe I'll insert you every now and then in my life. I'll play a little game with you. And God's not a game player. He's either God or he's not. And if you're going to rebel against him, you're saying, you're not, I am. That's my biggest problem. That's your biggest problem. That's act two. And I tell you what, if the act, if the story ended there, I don't even know how to finish that sentence. I don't even know if I'd tell you to go home. I don't know what to tell you. There's an act three. And and wow, is act three a dynamic act. And it's the act of hope. And the actors are, there's God again. God never goes out of the action. Even when sin comes into the world, God didn't desert the world. God is there. Adam is there. Eve is there. The serpent is there. And now there's an insertion. And I didn't know how to do a visual aid of this. There's an insertion of a seed. There's the promise of an offspring. There's a promise that someday there will be one who will come, who will alleviate and take away the problem of the cosmos, who will take the sin that has devastated this planet and has devastated this whole universe and has devastated my life and yours. And there's a seed coming, a little seed that's going to grow and it's going to come and it's finally going to be the one that will bring deliverance to humanity. It's the reason you need to know that story before you go to the Christmas story. And when you go to the Christmas story, don't stop with the birth narrative. Get on the cross and then get in the tomb and look at it carefully because that's the hope of sinful humanity. And look at verse 8. I love verse 8 and 9. And, you know, I've read this text a hundred times, probably a thousand times, and you guys probably have too. I don't think I've told you anything new this morning. These two verses, 8 and 9, jumped out at me like they hadn't before. It says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And so here's what they did. The man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. The one who was their source of life, they said, we're going to isolate ourselves from him. We're hiding. We're we're jumping. We got to get out of here. We can't see him. How absurd to try to hide from God, right? I mean, where are you going to go? If If I make my bed in hell, you're there. Or in Sheol or in the grave is what the psalmist said. If I ascend to the heights, no matter, God's, you're not getting away from God. You know what's also absurd on my human thinking is how absurd that God would come back to him. I mean, how amazing. Because I could see God would be totally just and totally right if he said... You know, I did all this for you, and you spit in my face. I tell you what, verse 8 is an incredibly encouraging verse because they heard the sound of the Lord God 
And, and, and it wasn't a joyful sound to them. It should have been, right? Hey, God, help us. You, we got ourselves into... And rather than that, they flee from him. They move away from him. And they hid themselves among the trees in the garden. And then verse 9 is the one that really jumps out at me. And you just got to believe that because at least in the ESV and a couple of other translations, that first word is the word that I have come to love and it's just as dear in my heart and it's the word but. It's the word but. It's the word that a couple years ago I preached a sermon. So my wife, we have on our Christmas tree a number of white bulbs or whatever you call them with the word but on it. That's a shock, isn't it? If you don't have one, you better get one because the fact is this. In, in, in John, it says, he came unto his own and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become sons of God. Or when you come to a text like this, it's as though they're hidden, they're gone, and Christ comes to them. It may have been Christ. That was a slippage. It was God. I, I, I sense that it may have been the pre-incarnate Christ. I'm not sure. He comes to them and he calls to them. And that should have been like music to their ears because here's the Savior calling to the sinner instead of the Savior saying, I'm going to give you exactly what you deserve. But the Lord God called to the man who represented the man and the woman. And, you know, I'm here to tell you as a preacher of the gospel today, the Lord God is still calling. (laughs) He's calling sinners. So those of you that aren't sinners, skip the text, skip the Bible, skip Christmas, skip somewhere. Those of us that are sinners, get your ears open because God's calling to you. Either those of you that have never put your faith and trust in Christ, listen, listen to the call of God to a sinner. Those of us that are believers and we say, yeah, you're my Lord, and yet you didn't live like it last week, there's still a call of God. Isn't that, man, that is the joy of who God is. So he called to the the man and said to him, where are you? As if God didn't know where he was. He knew exactly where he was. The call was not, tell me where you are. The call was, here I am. I mean, the call really was a call, come to me. Because that's the only hope you have. I wish we had time to go through all the rest of the stuff in this text, and we don't. (laughs) But let me tell you a little bit what, what goes on in the rest of Genesis 3. This God, this Savior, who comes to sinful humanity, who said, I want to be God, not you. And the implications of that are, you can say, well, God's not fair. Well, wait a minute. God said, I'll give you what you want. You want to be God? I'll let you be God. And here's what the end of that will be. It'll be you'll, you'll, you'll end up dead. Finally and ultimately separated from me and separated from all that's good. But I'll come in. I will insert myself. I will engage. I'm going to call to you. And in that calling, there's a couple things you see. I think part of his questioning of the man and the woman where, you, you remember the man said, ah, it's my wife. That's the problem. I got it. I know the answer. Come on, guys, how many times? Like I did that just yesterday to my wife. We had this discussion. And I knew that it was her fault that we had the discussion. And then as we were talking, and it wasn't going very well, it was not good. It was not flowing well. And I said to her, man, you know, I I practice these sermons a lot before I preach them. And I said, here I am doing just what Adam did. And I'm saying it's somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's my fault. I'm the one to blame. And I can't pull it off. Don't push it off on the serpent. Don't push it off on your wife or your husband or your boss or your whatever else it is. We stand naked before God. And I think in that beginning, those questions were to help humanity, man, Adam and Eve to understand, you know what? It's time you stepped up and said, I'm a sinner and you confessed. And it doesn't sound totally like they did that in that text, but as you read, even in in Romans, when Paul talks about Adam and elsewhere, my sense is that Adam and Eve probably did. So he helped them with confession. Then at the end of that chapter, and I love this too, that God said, you know, fig leaves, they're not going to make it. I'm going to give you some clothes. I'm going to give you some clothes. And in doing that, I'm going to kill an animal. And you know what? My ear, and I only hear out of one ear, but it's not bad. My My ear hears down the road that there's going to come a time when a lamb will be slain and his blood will be brought to bear on my sin. That his life will, I, I hear a little bit of that. And then I see this, this clothing that's better than fig leaves. Man, it's, it's like, I don't know if it was sheepskin. It was, you know, Ralph 
Ralph Lauren wasn't there either, was he? It was whatever it is that was a ton better. I mean, it was a significant upgrade from fig leaves. And it was as though Christ in his mercy is reaching out to his creatures in very preliminary cryptic ways, anticipating the story is going to go on. And the day will come that we celebrate as Christmas when Jesus is born and that Jesus who was born will die on the cross so that the righteousness of Christ can cover us so that we're not ashamed when we appear before our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's been the delight of the redeemed since the fall. Then the text goes on. And verse 15 is the last verse that I want to look at. Again, I wish we had more time. We don't. It's that text that has been argued a little bit among theologians because that's what theologians do. They argue things. And so I think I have the right answer on this text. And and the text, I think, is talking about a serpent But really, behind the serpent is what I think the serpent was empowered by, and that is Satan. And here's the statement. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And here's what, here's what God is saying, in essence, that here's going to be the story of the world from the garden. There's going to be two kingdoms. There's going to be the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world that is one that falls into the temptation and the snare of the evil one and says, I want to be king. That's the kingdom of this world. And then in contrast, there's going to be the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. It's the kingdom of the seed of the woman, the kingdom that anticipates the seed of the woman that will come, who will be Jesus, the Messiah, who will be the one who will ascend his throne And before he does that, he will go to a cross, and on that cross, he will put to death, death. He will deal the death blow to the serpent and to evil, and that kingdom will be warring against this kingdom, and that war will go on, and you and I live in that war. And you and I are in a world where (laughs) the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are at odds with each other, and here's the way we live every day, and that is struggling with that tension between those two worlds. And then look at the end of verse 15. It says, he shall bruise your head, meaning the offspring, or I like the word seed of the woman will bruise, or it could be translated crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise his heel, or will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And as these two kingdoms are battling with each other, you know what? The kingdom of this world, empowered by or at least tempted by Satan, is going to create a lot of conflict, a lot of evil, a lot of really not good stuff in the world. As a matter of fact, there are times when you're going to feel like you've been bitten by that serpent who in one sense is already dead. He's already crushed on the cross, and yet he still seems to be out there. And there are going to be times when it's going to be incredible pain, incredible suffering. That's what this world has to offer because there's that kingdom of the world that's still there. And yet, and yet... The reality is the serpent isn't just going to be heel crushed. He's going to be head crushed. Here's the difference. If you go out of here today and you decide to get hit by a car, don't do that. This is just an illustration. And you have a choice. And the choice is, do you want the car to crush your heel or your head? And you say, here's the option. I'll give you some pastoral advice. Tell them neither. How about neither? I don't want to get hit by a car today. If that car crushes your foot, you're going to deal with that the rest of your life. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt, etc. If it crushes your head, you're dead. And the fact is we live in a world and sin is, is, is horrific and it's horrible and it bites our heels all the time. But Christ in the cross crushed the head of the serpent. And in the end, the serpent will be cast into the lake of fire and that will be the end of that. And that's Christmas true, too, when God comes. And between now and then, the conflict is between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. So what do you do with that? What do 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 we do with this? I mean, it's one of those, do you you really believe that story in the first place? I mean, that sounds like a Christian kind of a fiction story. Or maybe there really was an Adam and Eve. And and by the way, there was. And, and, And there was really a serpent who was empowered by Satan. And Adam and Eve fell into sin. And we then have become, as their offspring, we've inherited a sin nature. And you know what? You don't have to be a rocket scientist or a sociologist to figure that one out. So, so what do you do with it? Well, I've got two points real quickly. First of all, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Don't take a day off. Don't say it's Thanksgiving. I'm not going to talk about the gospel. And let me give you a twofold aspect to the gospel. One is this. I don't know how many people are here this morning. I don't know some of you. 
But I, I would imagine this, that there's probably some of you that have come in here, and I don't know what you expected. Maybe you're with relatives, maybe whatever. And the fact is this, God created an incredibly glorious earth, and God was not only created it, but he's the Lord of it. You're never going to be satisfied until you're rightly related to him. That's what you were created for. And so was I. And there are days when you get a little taste of that. And yet the reality is we're sinners, and our only hope is that we come to the one who has crushed the head of the serpent, and we come to Jesus. And here's my call to you. If you're not one who has trusted in Jesus Christ and you're living your life on your own, you may not even think you are, but you are, then I would say stop that way of living and come to Jesus. Because there's that call of Jesus that says, if you come unto me and you're weak and heavy laden, I'll rest you, I'll give you rest. That I am the one who can offer you fullness of life. You can try your own way, but your own way is going to lead to death. I'm the way that leads to life. And I would say, don't go out of this building without bowing down and saying, Jesus, I need you and trusting in him as your savior. That's the gospel. Now, for those of us that say, okay, I've, I've been there, done that, and I hope you say that with sincerity, then I tell you what, you say, well, that's, that's that, now someday I'll go to heaven, that's all good. You know, you need to, I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. On those days when the serpent comes up and says, you know what, that relationship with that other person would really be good for you. It'll really make you happy. It'll be the delight of your eyes. And it's a rebellion against God Almighty. Don't just think it's just, well, you know what? We're humans. We do those kind of things. Yeah, if you're a human and you rebel against God, you can expect the outcome of that. And so here's what we need to do. Every day of our lives, even those of us that are believers, we say, God, it's your good that I want because that's what's good for me. (laughs) I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to doubt you. I'm not going to, in the end of the day, say, I desire to be you. I'm going to submit my will to you, Lord. You're my God. Or maybe maybe you've had trouble with, with being anxious. I don't know about you. There's days when I think, man, how is all this going to work? I mean, I, just, I, I have limited resources on every level of resources. I don't have enough money. There's times, you know, my back's hurting me, and I'm, I'm not getting any younger. I'm getting older. I'm not sure where this is all. I, actually, I think I know where it's all tracking. It doesn't seem all that good. And so then I start to get anxious. And part of anxiety is this. And it's not that I don't have sympathy for anxious people, because I'm one of them. And at the court saying, God, you must not be that good. Because if you were good enough, you would have given me all these things so I wouldn't have to be anxious. And here's what God calls us to. You know what he calls us to? To say, God, you are good all the time, all the time. You're good. You are. You're good all the time. Yeah. Easier said on Sunday morning than it is when you go into the crises of life that many of you are in and I've been in and I understand. And yet I also understand the antidote isn't, God, you've got to deliver me from this. God will deliver you from that. That day will come. But between now and then, we need to trust him because he's the one that's worthy of being trusted. So preach the gospel to yourself every day. Don't take a day off. Don't, don't take an hour off. That Jesus Christ is the one who is our joy and our hope and he's all that we need. Secondly is this. I think it's appropriate to weep over the heel crushing of the serpent. Just in the last couple of weeks in our church, we've had babies die in the church. I mean, in our church family. And, you know, when I think of the twistedness of sin, it doesn't get any more twisted than babies dying. That's as twisted as it can possibly be. And I can deny that it happens. The fact is it does happen. And the fact is that's the evil of the kingdom of this world that twists and distorts. And, and so the question is, what do I do about that? There are people in our church that have been diagnosed with cancer. There are people that are going through some, some horrific evils in the world. And they are us. They're us. That's who we are. And the kingdom, that biting of the serpent sometimes seems so venomous and so evil. And so. And here's what we need to do. We need to remember that Jesus Christ is a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. We need to understand that Jesus is the God of all comfort. And we need to understand that he's crushed the head of the serpent and the day will come. And that's a faith statement, isn't it? The day will come when he will put all things to right, as the British would say it. When he will make it right. You know, if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Mark did a, um, did a little video at the beginning of the sermon of, of Jim Greer. 
And Jim Greer was his professor. Mark's younger than me, so obviously it was a different era. He was my professor. And I'll never forget going into Jim Greer's classes. And it's like the glory of God emanated from him, it felt like. He was, he was one who knew how to articulate the word in a way that just spoke to my heart. He talked of a sovereign, triune God, the creator of the world, the redeemer of the world, who loves the world. And my heart would just leap and continues to leap with joy when I think about some of the things that he taught from the scripture. And he's dying. And there's something about when you go to this person that seemed to have such an influence in your life and you realize this guy has only a couple days left. I want to see how he dies. <laughs> What's he die like? That serpent is coming. It's going to bite his heel. And here's the way he used to sign his, his, uh, his emails. He used to say, the old pilgrim on his way to the celestial city. <laughs> this world's not my home. I'm a pilgrim in the journey and my life intersects the story of the Bible and it intersects it at the point of sin for sure and yet it also intersects it at the point of the cross where Christ has provided for my needs and as we're on our way to the celestial city, let me, let me, just, let me just read a little bit of the last story. I'm just going to take a minute and then I'm going to dismiss you. Revelation 20 says, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and all God's people ought to say Amen. Why didn't it happen in the garden? And then it goes on and it talks about the destruction of evil, the ultimate final crushing of the serpent's head. And then 21, chapter 21 says this, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Same verbiage as Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth at the end of the story, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the, 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 the end of December, this, we're going we're to have a sermon by one of our residents on that, this particular text. You, you don't want to miss this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had been messed up big time by sin. They had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice. There's times I love loud voices. From heaven saying the dwelling place, the temple of God is with man. That God and man are reconciled and reconciled forever. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will take care of all those serpent bruisings. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Death shall be no more. That's the end of the story. And we're here somewhere awaiting the end of the story, praying with the people of God, come thou long expected Jesus. Don't take this Advent season just to look back. Take the Advent season to say, Jesus, come again, Lord, please. Finish that crushing of the serpent's head. Bring your kingdom, God. And then we would sing. And I remember my mom taking us to listen to Handel's Messiah. We would sing, hallelujah. If I was better, I would lead you in that. And then you know what it says in that song? And most people miss this. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That's a bad rendition of it, but what a glorious song. So people of God, we need to be those that fight against the temptations of this world. And we do so with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, thank you for who you are. Lord, amazing grace that thou, my God, would die for me. And Lord, I would pray for this group of people here this morning. I pray for those here who have not come to personal faith in you. And they are still assuming the role of Lord and God in their life. Lord, I pray that you would convict them of that. Draw them to yourself. Lord, even as I'm praying, may they be asking you to be their Savior, Lord. And to forgive them of, your, of their sins because that's what you want to do. And for those of us, your people, Lord, may we be pilgrims that are on a journey to the celestial city wanting to live out the full glory of God as you give us time here proclaiming the gospel to ourselves and to a world and doing so knowing that that is what you have us here for. And I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. If you're here and you don't know Christ, there'll be people down here. I'll be, I'd love to talk to you about Christ. For those of you that are the redeemed, let's go out singing hallelujah and then let's live for the kingdom of God. Thank you.